Live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, it's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with your host, Adam Cruz. Welcome, welcome everybody to the St. Louis Realtor Podcast, live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, Missouri. Today is episode 31, it's March 14th, 2007, and everyone's wondering, what are you doing Three days before St. Patty's Day, you should be preparing, getting your beer made green, getting your whiskey ready. So we do have a very special guest today, one of my personal favorites, Shannon St. Pierre. Yes, it's a bit chilly today. It is. Out here on the rooftop. Out here on the rooftop. That's right. That's right. You are the color person here today, so we appreciate that. Already (laughs) throwing zingers at me. Uh, Our episode today is going to be what my wife calls a potpourri episode, a mix. We're going to talk about all sorts of different things. Okay, you ready for this, Shannon? I'm in. We're going to talk about rental property I just bought, one I just sold, uh, some warnings about the real estate deal that I was sort of trying to get involved in that was a little bit, it turned out to be the seller I found to be a little shady. Um, and we're going to talk about some of my financial goals, some dilemmas that we're having with uh, property. We're just going to dive right in. It's going to be an interesting episode for anyone who is interested in real estate, is a real estate nerd like I am. And I, uh, can I put you yes. in Yes. You are too? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, we sat in our company sales meeting today and we talked for 25 minutes or so about literally three different lines on the sales contract, right? And we're, we're arguing over what to put <laughs> in the interest rate thing and the inspection resolution period thing. We're arguing about the acceptance deadline date and how all that stuff works. So... We just love to talk about real estate. And if you do too, we'd love to hear from you. So please email podcast at hermanlondon.com. Feel free to call in, send us a message on Facebook, like us on iTunes. Our producer here, Joey, has gotten us on so many different websites and he's our tech guy. So I don't even know. So, where so what's your Snapchat? Uh, I do have a Snapchat now. Oh, let's, I'm going to ask you about Snapchat. Let's do Let's talk. Shannon and I went to the other day and we saw a presentation by Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary V for, for those who don't know. Yeah, love the guy. And does he did he say he thought Snapchat was going to be a big deal? Or is currently a big deal? It is a big deal. It's here. And if you're not in and you're not in the know, then you're already behind. Okay, so I'm in because I have a Snapchat. But I'm definitely not in the know because all I get is like pictures of my friend's dogs and my buddy Brian Claridge, who is the most funny person on Snapchat ever. So I don't. The oh, thing well, I don't like about Snapchat. No, well, I don't know. Does he? Is it like public or it does is. he sending me it's private just, messages? Well, it's both. So it's he is hilarious. The thing I don't like about Snapchat is that you can never like see the stuff again. You know, I want to. I would love to pull out my phone and show you the videos that he sent me of him, like with the funny face on, and like base, he made like his uh, dating tryout videos or whatever. <laughs> And he just says, oh, like, that would make an awesome. So do you watch, does he send you his chat or does he, is it in his story? I don't know. It's not, it's definitely not. I don't watch it through his story. I like so then receive it's not it as public. a chat. And I used to think that people were sending just me a message and I'm figuring out that he's probably sending these messages to me and like a bunch of other people. Sure. So I started doing the same thing. You know, it's right. like I get more for my money kind of thing. Right. Right. Um, how do people use Snapchat for real estate? So some people are actually using it in 
as far as real estate agents and brokers, they're using it to not necessarily promote a listing, but say the lifestyle of the listing. So they're using it to showcase maybe a view, something you're not going to get from the MLS or Zillow or any of those, even the videos, that that some of those unique features of houses that just don't come through that are really kind of just neat. So you like pull up your Snapchat and you show this kitchen that's outdated and then all of a sudden Snapchat makes it look like it has granite countertops and (laughs) (laughs) puts a filter on it. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, it's a Snapchat filter to make your kitchen look good. No, they don't have filters to make your kitchen look good, but that's an awesome idea. Well, copyright. Snapchat. uh... Yeah. Are you listening? Um, no, they're just, it's, it's lifestyle. It's one realtor uses it to, was at Home Depot, say, and was showing some home technology. So they put that on their story. The story. And then, so you, I guess people could find them as a realtor and then they would just like watch stuff on their story. Yes. So either if you don't know their username, um, a lot of business people, realtors and anyone promoting themselves are using it uh, taking the snap codes and promoting that so that you can on say twitter on instagram so directing people to snapchat because the downfall the the hard part about snapchat is there is no discovery i feel like they're gonna have this podcast in like a history class 10 years from now to be like can you believe people didn't know what how to use snapchat 10 (laughs) years ago and now we use it for everything but okay, let's move on. Okay, you don't mind. But mm-hmm. oh, um, two I two more Snapchat <laughs> questions for my local Snapchat expert here. Uh, can you like get extra filters other than the ones that they just like show up? You know, every day. No, I haven't found a way to do that. But you, as a business owner, can create one. So someone that say right coming in to check out your business can actually get a specialized filter. So they would somehow like it's download that into their Snapchat mm-hmm. because it's a geo filter. Oh, it's called a geo filter. Okay, mm-hmm. I need to look into that. It's really mm-hmm. inexpensive for most businesses to do, but it's also up to only I think it's fifty thousand square feet, which is not very large from your business. From your business, around your business is what essentially you're going okay. to do. Okay. But if you used that entire fifty thousand square feet, it's like. $2,000. But if you take it down to right the perimeter of your business, you're looking at 50 bucks. So that's how Snapchat is making money? Yes, right now. Okay. Because, so for example, somebody showed me the other day a picture of that they had made on Snapchat with a filter and it was like a bowl of Cheerios, but it had like inside each Cheerio was their baby's face. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, so was that like, just before I got on Snapchat, that that was a filter that was available that they used and saved? Or did they like download special baby filters or something? I, I don't know. No, so I haven't quite figured out how the filters end up in, say, your box or, or mine. Is Because I've seen the same thing. Uh, my friend sent me one that was a Hello Kitty one. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my daughter would love that one. And I mm-hmm. couldn't find it anywhere. So I'm not sure exactly. But Maybe I you have can a go few- to like your app store and download more like a package of filters or something. Maybe. All right. Anyway, we've got to get back to real estate here. So let me tell you, uh, I, I'd like to ask your opinion, okay? Okay. I f- was searching the MLS the other day. I found a home that was listed. It's near the hill in St. Louis. Uh, it's, I guess it's technically Southwest Gardens. It was listed at 50000 
um, I did what I often do, and I just made an offer on it. Single family? Single family home. And I, I don't forget, I don't remember exactly what I offered, but it must have been like around $30,000. Okay. Okay, so back and forth, negotiate, negotiate. You know, we would go back and forth. Ultimately, I ended up, I bought it, and I actually closed today. I bought it for $36,000. Okay. What's interesting to me is that there's already a tenant in the property. She's paying five ninety five a month. She's been paying it for years, or for a while at least, you know. And she's going to sign a new lease with us. When her lease ends at the end of May, she's going to sign a new lease with us and pay six forty five a month. Okay? okay. Great. Uh, not that much of an increase, just a you know, standard increase, I guess. But the interesting thing to me, and it really hit me even more when I was at closing, and they, sh- you know, they show me what my payment is going to be. My payment is going to be two hundred and forty three dollars a month. I put twenty percent down, which was you know just over six thousand dollars or whatever, and it just kind of boggles my mind. This lady that is the living there currently as the tenant, or I'm going to start trying to use the word resident, the resident who is occupying the property, she knew the property was for sale. Because she lived there. There was a sign in front of her house, right? There's people coming through. Like, obviously, I scheduled a showing, and I went through the property. She knew it was for sale. Why didn't she buy it? She's I'm literally paying half of what her rent is, and she, she could have done that, too. So the thing that I've come across, and I've come across this scenario, actually, a couple different times within the last couple months because I've been searching properties as well. So... What I'm finding when you ask that question is, one, sometimes they don't even think of it. It's not even on their radar to buy a house. Do they now, just assume only rich people buy houses I or think something? so. I, or the, the, uh, they'll say, uh, I don't have 20% to put down. And I don't know where that misconception has come mm-hmm. from because when's the last time you really had to have 20% down? I mean, I did the on this 80s? one because it was investment. But she could have bought it with zero down. Right. Well, yes, 20% down, you as an investor, you and I as like investors mm-hmm. have to put some skin into the game. But a homeowner, an owner-occupant, someone's going to be living there, right. can buy a home for as little as 3% down and maybe nothing. Yeah, they have the grants now for yes, the 0% Yes, and maybe down. nothing. So I think that there's a lot of misconceptions out there the more that I talk to certain age groups and not even it's not even in the certain age groups but um, people who have not ever owned homes before there's this misconception and or they want to but their credit score is below 600 right okay so they're not qualifying right now and i've heard the other argument i've heard is that they don't want to be committed but it's just interesting to me because She's, as far as I'm concerned, she's more committed to this property than I am at this mm-hmm. point. She's, if she, especially when she signs her another year lease, she's going to stay there a year and definitely has to pay there for a year. And how long she's been, how, has she been there? I don't know how long she's been there. So a I while. find that wildly interesting because several of the properties that I've looked at, the t- tenants have been there, I don't know, minimum, like, I think the least I was looking at was seven years mm-hmm. or maybe six years. Others, like 10. Yeah. I'm but like, why? I don't know. And so, and is it complacent? You know, is, are they just maybe they're comfortable? They don't want the commitment. But my point change. is, I'm less committed to that property than she is because I could sell it to somebody else if I wanted to right now. Yes. You know, and she's stuck there, right? But, uh, the, you know, I guess it's interesting to me that in this case, my mortgage is under half of what her, her lease amount is, which I'm like, that's amazing. 
Uh, you know, so I'll be making a little, what will I be making? $400 a month once her rent goes up. Mm-hmm. And um, by the way, so I'll have my money back. I put down just over $6,000. I'll have my money back in like a year and a half or something like that. Um, it's my down payment amount back. But even better is when we buy these four family buildings and one unit pays for the whole building. The mortgage or the rent from one unit pays for the whole entire mortgage for the whole building. Then you got three other units doing it too. So uh, those numbers are even better, I guess, is my point than they are on this single family house. But anyway, I don't know. I don't get it. And so I just thought I'd ask. But I wanted to give a shout out to my lender, who in this case was Melissa Emo mm-hmm. from American Eagle Credit Union and Anheuser Busch Employees Credit Union. Um, a, she's a friend of mine, but she's awesome. But also, I goes under the misconception that you can't get a loan for under $50,000. I had the same right? thing. And so what I found is that you can. Mm-hmm. It's just often the mortgage broker or the lender or whatever they want to call themselves, they don't want to do it because they don't make very much money on those deals. They make no money. They make no money. They, lo- they essentially almost lose money. Okay. Well, she did it for me. I hope right. she made some money, you know. Right. Uh, but... It was great because, you know, the numbers, if so I So what was the small, what was the minimum amount that you asked her or that she said she, she would basically do? said, I don't think she said that. I think she said there is no minimum. So, cause the bank that I checked with, they said the minimum was as little as 20,000 okay. is what they'll do a loan for. Okay. Because I did check with my broker friend too, who said, no way, like not going to happen. Not, not worth my time. Not that we won't do it, but it's not worth my time. Right. No, so, he just said, no, we don't do them. Okay. No. It yeah. was just a flat out no. And so it's amazing because my numbers would not have been nearly as sexy if I would have just paid cash for the property because, you know, my or my return on investment number would be different because my right now my investment into the property is $6,000. I'm making $400 a month. You figure out my ROI and it's a really high number. If I had put down all $36,000, and then I was I would then be making all six forty five a month, but my percentage of return based on what I've put down is just a lot lower. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So buying You're leveraging your credit mm-hmm. more so. Buying these lower end properties is now like I've my opened my eyes. I'm like, maybe I'll buy some more, you know? And I'll talk a little bit later on about what my financial goal is now and so how these kind of play into that. Next on my list is to talk about this building I'm selling. I guess we're still in the process of selling it, so I'm not going to put the uh, address out there uh, to the world, but it's a four-family building that I bought with a partner, and we rehabbed it. You know, we bought it for $20,000. We've put a little over 100 ish into it and rehabbing it, and... Uh, it was bad. It was condemned. It, there was had been a fire in there. It was pretty bad. That's why we got it for so cheap. Um, but now we're selling it. We had it listed for two thirty, and we have it rented. And I'm sitting here going, I think I should buy it. Like buy my partner out. My partner wants to cash out and take his money and do some other stuff. I'm like, I think I should buy it. I think I should buy it. I think I should buy it. But I just wasn't taking action on it. Because I, my alternative is to get a bunch of cash. You know, I mean, you can do the math. I told you what we're selling it for, what we have into it. So my alternative was to get a bunch of cash. And I'm like, I would rather make cash flow every month and still I still have equity in the property than I would to get a bunch of cash. Okay. 
So I, I said, all right, forget it. I'm going to buy this place. So I call Melissa Emo, and she figures out how I can do it as a refinance, where I'm refinancing, I guess it's like a cash-out refinance, paying off our original lien holder, who's a hard money lender, paying off my partner, who getting getting like his percentage out of it, and we would just refinance it into my name, and I would avoid um, capital gains taxes that way because I'm technically not selling it. This is great. We had it all figured out. I'm like, all right, great. I pay for an appraisal. And we just didn't have the results back yet, and we get an offer. I'm like, damn, I've wanted an offer for a long time on this, and now we have an offer after I'm trying to buy it, and I've convinced myself to buy it. And so we made a pretty aggressive counter offer. You know, I don't remember honestly what the offer was. It was like 200 or something. And I countered back at 225. And I'm like, they're not going to pay that, you know. And so I'm sort of proceeding forward, and then they, they counter back. And now I really decided I wanted to buy this property, this okay. property. Okay. And so then I'm like, they counter back, and I'm like, no, we don't want it. You know, I'm just going to keep it. And then he's like, are you rescinding your counter offer to us? And I was like, uh, no, I guess I'm not. And so then like 10 minutes later, they accepted my counter offer at 225, and they're buying it. And I'm like, Cool, but damn, like I really so wanted to So here's buy this. my thought process the whole time you were going through that is because you have like say what are you guys going to net like We'll each get somewhere around like 40ish. Okay. So why not take that $40,000 and go buy four more properties where the cash flow will be more than what you would have been getting from that fourplex? Well, it's it is possible to do that, but the cash flow on this property was going to be really good, you know? So if I kept my equity in the property, I think the I'm just using rough numbers here, but I think the total my total loan on it would have been something like 175, right? We pay the lien holder back. Mm-hmm. Um, we pay for all the work that we've done to it, and then I pay my partner off. I think my loan would have been like 175. And the math that I did, um, even after management and all this other kind of stuff, I was going to be making right around a thousand dollars a month. Oh, cash flow, and so I'm like, well, okay. I can so make- for one seventy five thousand dollars cash flow is huge. That's impre- was, that would be way impressive. So it was I can good. See why? Well, I'm like, <laughs> so I would have had my thousand dollars a month plus. Then whenever I wanted to, next month, a year from now, ten years from now, I could still sell it and have gotten all out all that cash I was going to get out. Or heck, I probably could have done a some sort of a HELOC or something and gotten that equity out yes. if I would have needed it, right? Right, true. And so my thought was, I'm like, dang, I'm just going to have to take all this money. My wife is like, I hate you right now, but I'm like, I'm going to have to take all this money that I'm getting, this big burden on me, and buy other stuff when I already have like this great solution here with this totally gut-rehabbed property with tenants in it, you know? Yes. And I so- actually, I can see, yeah, I, I think you're right it would have been a great property to probably keep a hold of because now finding four other properties that make sense cash flow and or fixing them up and getting tenants in there is exactly. much, it's probably not worth the hassle of your. Yeah. Plus I, I am going to, so what happened was then they got under contract and then they did their inspections um, and they found a couple things they wanted us to fix like a little plumbing leak, some electric um, like the uh, ground wire from the electric you know how they run that to the where the water comes in the main water line or whatever yeah they had run it to the old main water line because we had to put a new one in because it was condemned building all this stuff so they found a few things and um basically we just said no we're not doing it we're not doing anything for you guys because i'm still going 
and, and how about you just back out so I can buy it instead, you know? Because as the seller, we have no re- uh, right to back out. So I'm kind of like, no, we won't do anything. Uh, feel free to walk away, you know? And they're like, well, will you please do this one thing? And we're like, no. And then they're like, will you please give us two more days to think about it? Because they were, you know, we were nearing the end of our inspection resolution period. And we're like, no. And they're like, fine, we'll take it anyway. And they sign. <laughs> and I'm like, cool, but dang, you know. And so anyway, we're selling the building. And I got to take that money and find something else to buy. But yeah. it, the stomach ache for me came in because I knew that now I'm going to have to pay taxes on this money. The capital gains taxes and stuff like that. And what are capital gains taxes? Well, okay, I mean, how much, so, do you know how much they are? What the percentages? I I don't. I'm going to talk very uh, sort of uneducatedly about this. And you know, anyone who's listening, please don't take what I'm about to say as even truth at all. Ask your own CPA. You know, but it sounded to me like since we owned the property for under a year together, um, and we're selling it, I have to pay. I don't even remember. It was something like there was this, we were supposed to close earlier in April. And if we would have closed then, I would have had to pay a much bigger percent, like 20% or something like that of the my profit. But since we, we ended up extending the closing to be like, I guess a year after we've had the property, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Talk to your CPA. But there was something related to if I would close after the certain date, my tax burden would be significantly less. So is there one year point? Because that it, t- capital gains tax is... Two years. Two years. But there there must be some sort of so one year... So is there another little one year law? Yeah, I guess there is. There's some sort of one year thing. Okay, we got to look that up. That, yeah, I don't... Anybody who's listening, don't, don't take my word on it. Call your CPA. Um, but mine gave me that advice that if we would close after a certain date, I would somehow save a bunch of tax money. So the seller was willing to agree to that. But that was before we said, no, we won't do anything for you. Um, it's fun. I, I'm having fun buying these properties. And, and I've, I've always talked on the show about how my goal was to have uh, more passive income than what my expenses are. Right? I don't know if you've ever right. heard me say that. Yes. But we played the board game Cash Flow by Robert Kiyosaki. Um, I don't think I've ever played that with you. We, got, we should get Jeff and play that. But... Um, it's you know you've read, ever read the book Rich Dad Poor Dad? Yes. So he made this board game and it's great. It's sort of like Monopoly except there's like spreadsheets involved and uh, it's you know um, income statements. I, I meant to say there's like income statements and fin- balance sheets and stuff like that involved in the board. It game. Sounds like a total accountant game. Yeah, bring your calculator, but it's all about getting your cash flow to be greater than your expenses okay. and getting what they they call it getting out of the rat race essentially okay. because. If you, so you don't have to rely on your job to pay for your expenses. Okay. Um, so my goal was always passive income from rental properties greater than expenses. But that's really a moving target. That's hard to sort of have something to work towards because, you know, I just bought a new car recently. And so my car payment went up. And we kind of want a bigger house. And so that will change. And if we have a baby, that'll change. And so that was really a moving target for me. And oh, yeah. so I said, okay, I need a more set goal. And I just came up with $10,000 a month. Okay. You know, right now my expenses are significantly less than that. And some people's are more, some people's are a lot less than that or whatever, but having this financial or having this like, like measurable goal, I want $10,000 a month in passive income has really been uh, sort of empowering for me because it's giving me something to work for. 
And now everything I th- every opportunity I see, I can measure how much closer it's getting me to my goal. Right? I can log in to Google Docs and open up my spreadsheet every day or once a month or whatever and update it and see how close I am to my financial goal. And now I know how many more properties I need to buy to get to my goal and all that stuff. It's 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 uh, really nice. I love that I have this like set measurable goal to work towards. Okay. I think that's a good one. You like that one? I do. Yeah, and so I want to do the same thing. Yeah, high five. And so it's kind of funny because it's like, well, what are you going to do once you get to $10,000 a month passive income? Well, I don't know. Anything I want is kind of my point, right? I, if I want to keep working, which I'm sure I will because I love what I do and I love working, I will, right? But if I, if I wanted to quit my job and go like volunteer at a dog shelter, I could do that. You know, I like the idea of having that kind of freedom and flexibility um, because as realtors and you know, commission salespeople, I don't feel that we have necessarily a lot of kind of like financial security, because we never, you know, you never know where your next paycheck is going to come from. Right. And for some reason, for me, no matter how much money I have in the bank, it doesn't give me that that feeling of financial security. But the idea of having passive money or just money coming in every month gives me that sense of security. Right. And I think the hardest part, though, about all of this is I can is for one, I think setting the goal, but then two, just getting started because you get like. For us, we have a limited amount of cash on hand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to buy properties and then how leveraging what the cash that we have on hand and our credit and how do you maximize that? So that's where I think we're kind of still stuck. Yeah. Well, you might be doing what we call analysis paralysis, right? Where you right? feel this extreme pressure to make it perfect. So you kind of just do nothing. And my suggestion is do something you know, buy something, just buy something and figure it out and make it work. And the worst case is you sell it, right? Or you lose a couple thousand dollars, but that's still you're learning and you're on your path towards achieving your goals, right? Right. We talk about failing forward and all that kind of stuff. If you just sit here with this equity in your house and your money, whatever money you have in the bank, you're never going to get towards your goal. If you just keep thinking about it, you have to actually do something. Right. And so, you know, so my goal is $10,000 a month passive income. If that was my only goal, you have to kind of consider other um, aspects to that, right? So, as an example, I was showing one of my clients' property the other day, and it's a property in North City. And they want $40,000 for the property. And I'm like, oh, okay, we'll see what this is going to be. And we go up there, and it's a really... It's a four-family building in really nice shape. Each unit has two bedrooms, one bathroom, and, and and a kitchen with a basement storage area. And the lot right next to it is vacant. And so that it feels like it has a big yard, you know. And each unit pays $550. So you thought my deal that I just talked about by the hill was a good one. This guy is going to buy a four-family building for less than I just spent on mine. And he's going to get four times the income of what I'm getting almost four times. I'm going to get six forty-five, but he's getting five fifty a unit. So his payment, if he buys this building and gets a loan is also going to be right around the two thirty to two fifty range. And he's going to be making what's five fifty times four, $2,200 a month. So he'll be making close to $2,000 a month. Have you Amazing, done that right? deal yet? 
No, <laughs> we haven't done it yet. We wrote offers. The agents being a little bit difficult to work with, um, but you know, I think I think he probably will end up getting it. And I'm yeah, I'm like, well, why don't I buy it? You know? Maybe yeah, maybe I should slide in there and buy it myself. <laughs> well, so so the interesting thing that you have to consider is that property has a very little chance of ever appreciating in value. You know, if you drive around that, if oh, you drive yes. around the few streets around there, there is more homes that are boarded up than there are homes that are occupied. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, to me, the chance of that property appreciating in value are very little. So 20 years from now, his property will literally probably be worth about the same. But that's fine because he's been making $2,000 a month for 20 years. Yeah, I could care less. Yeah. If Who I cares, were, right? Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, that, I just think it. I just think it's interesting. So why don't I just go buy all properties like that? Well, because for me, I'd sort of like to have, like I guess, a diversified portfolio, you know, and so have some nicer properties and some properties that are just all about cash flow. Does that make sense? Yes. But then, I guess, which is why you can, why I consider and say, take action, buy something, because it doesn't have to meet your exact formula, because you don't have to have an exact formula. The formula is buy cash flowing investments. And if I wanted to get to my $10,000 a month passive income in the next six months, I could, right? Okay, so then you talk about buying the income or rental properties. What Mm -hmm. about flips then? Does that, I know that doesn't account for your monthly, but is that still a goal? Well, so. The flips are like the one I was just talking about where I was like disappointed mm-hmm. that I'm not buying it because I'm going to sell it and I'm going to make all this money. Right. To me, a flip is you make a bunch of money, but now you have a job to do, right? Now you've got to figure out what to do with this money. And so I sat there and I'm like, this, this really seems too good to be true that I could go and within a year is my goal to make this $10,000 a month passive income. Like that seems to be going to be true. Why so you've only do been that? buying rental properties for the last year or you no, want to get No, I've been how- buying rental properties for I don't know, 10 years or something like that. I okay. Guess. So you've been working up years. to this goal for several I've years. I've never really had the goal. My goal was always just like buy some properties, make passive income. I never had a measurable goal that I was working toward, like a finish line right. kind of thing, you know. But so now that I have that, it's like does this seem too good to be true? And I'm like calling my dad. I'm like, I think I just figured out that my goal is $10,000 a month in passive income. And it like seems like you're going to laugh at me when I say that, right? Because that seems unreasonable or something like that. And, you know, they can't be that easy. And what I figured out is it's not that easy, right? The difference between between someone who just sets the goal today and I guess me is that I've been working really, really hard for a long time. So I have this money that I can use as down payments, mm-hmm. right? So that's why I can probably get to this goal in the next year or two, depending on what kind of properties I want to buy, is because I've been working really hard and I've been saving up money that I can use as down payments. If you're just starting now and you don't have any money, then you might want to do, or these flips might be more important to you because then you can get the cash that you need to, to make the down payments, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So are you buying these as Adam Cruz or an LLC? Well, I am. Depends. Like, I guess it depends on the financing. When I bought it through Melissa Emo, mm-hmm. it, it was an investment loan, but it has to be as Adam Cruz. Now, I've talked to other lenders that will do more like a commercial type of loan, and you can buy that as an LLC. And does that have uh, benefits if, say, you're flipping a property? 
Do you pay? Do you? I don't. I. I don't want to. I should feel like I should give a disclaimer. Call your attorney. Call your CPA if you have questions about this. Right. My understanding is that doing it as an LLC has uh, legal liability reduction protections for you. Right. Um, so they, in theory, could sue that LLC for everything the LLC is worth. So if you have all of your properties in different LLCs, then they can't you think of them as different islands, right? right. They can't really attack all of your islands. Uh, my experience is that they sue your LLC, they sue you for your name, they just sue everybody. So that that has been my experience. Will I put these properties into LLCs now, like quit claim them into LLCs? Yeah, I will. Um, and probably different LLCs for each property. Uh, it's not that expensive to make an LLC. It's really not that hard. I know how to do it. You can go to sos.mo.gov and you can whip out an LLC in you know, probably 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, for like 50 bucks. I think it's like $100 or something. Is it 100 yeah, now? Something like that. Okay. It's not 500 you know, right. You can pay your attorney to do it. He'll go to sos.mo.gov and he'll do the exact same thing and then add his hourly rate to it. And maybe you'll pay $500, but you can do it. It's, yeah, it's something like 50 to $100 ish. That's my new financial goal. I like to share that. Uh, I heard a long time ago that if you have a goal and it's in your head, you have some small percentage of chance of getting it. If you write it down, your percentage of chance of achieving it is greater. If you tell, more people about it, then your percentage chance of achieving it is greater. And if you say it on your podcast, then, <laughs> then your percentage chance of it. Now everyone knows that I'm going to see Tom Milford for lunch in a couple of weeks. And he's going to be like, hey, how are you doing on that 10,000? You know, so now that I've told the podcast, I really have to work on it. And I'll, and I'll try to give updates. You know, I think I'm about halfway to my goal now. So uh, let's see. Can I just keep talking at you? Keep going. All right. So. Oh, I'll do like sort of a quick uh, commercial. Now that we're selling that property, that four-family building that I was discussing, we do need to buy more properties because I am enjoying this flipping thing that I'm doing with my partner, Brian, and our company, PropperVest. And so if anyone is listening and they know about a burned-out house, a house where there's a senior transitioning, a house where someone has... If you inherited if somebody's inheriting a property that they want to sell for cash, you know, the same type of like we buy ugly house type of stuff. Uh, that's what we're doing. And so if you have one, give me a call. 314-210-5115. We'd love to buy the properties from you. Um, let's see. Oh, something, something came up, Shannon, that I thought was pretty unbelievable. And I've been in this real estate game for, I guess, about 12 years. And you hear, like I just mentioned it, I'm going to, I got this loan and then I'm going to quit claim it into an LLC. Okay. And so what is the fear about that? Have you ever heard that, oh, the lender might call the loan? No, I haven't. Is that a possibility? They say it's a possibility, but everyone says it like, oh yeah, that's a possibility. Oh, because of the transfer? Because technically the loan is in your name and now the property is in the LLC's name. And so they might call the loan. And they always say, oh, that could happen. But everyone's like, but that would never happen. Yeah, but if you read all the fine print, there's a million things that could happen pretty much that they can call the loan. Right. And so, or if you buy a property and you're going to live there Mm -hmm. and then eventually you move out, then technically they could call the loan. Yes. Um, Which I didn't really realize that because I thought that part was all about intent. Like, 
I intended to buy the property and live there. I did live there for a couple of years. And then my, you know, circumstances in my life changed. And so I'm renting the property. Still paying you every month, but I didn't realize they could call the loan for that. Well, we have a situation that came up where, uh, let's just say someone who's very close to me owns a duplex and she lived there for six years. I mean, she bought it and lived there for about six years and then she moved in with someone when she got married. Okay. Well, guess what? A couple months later, she gets a letter in the mail. Actually, a year later, she gets a letter in the mail from her lender and they say, hey, we just heard that you moved out. You either need to move back in or refinance or we're calling the loan. So is it an, F- is it an FHA loan? I don't know. I guess that, does that you think that might have influenced it? So FHA will do that. Okay, so they... I'm like, this is... <laughs> what? First of all, I've never <laughs> heard of anyone ever calling a loan ever, ever. You just, don't, you just don't hear about it. You know that it's like something that can happen, but you never hear about it happening. So I'm like... Oh, yeah, this can't be true. So I call their bank for them. And I'm, you know, with them right there or whatever, and I'm talking to them. And they're like, oh, just, you know, just send a letter explaining why you moved and what your intent is. I'm like, oh, great, no problem. So we write a letter like, you know, this person's moved in with their spouse and we intend to rent it out and keep paying the mortgage like we always have. And unbelievably, like, Four days later, we get a letter back from the bank like, no, sorry, you need to either move back in or refinance or pay us back. We're calling the loan because they said there was something called a bond writer on the loan. I've never heard of these things. I don't even really know exactly what I'm talking about. And so now, anyway, that person has to refinance the property and keep it as a rental if if she wants to keep it as a rental, which... Of course, she just wants to sell it and be done with it. And I'm like, what are you doing? You have a rental property. Keep it as a rental, you know? Yeah. So what would be, so in this scenario, what's the big deal in refinancing? There's not necessarily so a like big deal. So like for everybody listening going, okay, so then refinance it out of, let's say I almost have to assume it's an FHA because I don't think that's part of the conventional loan process, right. but FHA, I'm sure it is. The big deal to this person is just that they hate all this kind of stuff. You know, I don't, she doesn't get it. She's not into loans and rental properties and refinancing and property management. She's just not into it all, you know? Okay. And so anything like this, she doesn't understand and therefore stresses her out, which I think is kind of a normal for someone, you know, like. That's absolutely. When I have sure. car problems, I get stressed out because I don't <laughs> yeah. know what the hell they're talking about. You know? Right. Um, it's not going to be too big of a deal. I think she'll probably just probably call a lender and refinance. And so. You're right. What is the big deal? It's not that big of a deal. But I just, to me, it was more unbelievable. I never heard of anyone calling a loan. No, and I didn't know that they actually really did do that. And then the question always comes up, well, how are they ever going to find out? How are they ever going to find out? Well, well, they apparently did find out a year later somehow, some way. And, I, and I've had someone else ask me that recently. Like, how do they know if you move? Well, A, you probably fill out some sort of like uh, change of address with the Postal Service. But whether you do that or don't do that... The new person is putting utilities in their name. So I think I'm thinking that they're using one of those two things. I don't think they're using like AI technology and geo tracking you or something like that, you know, through your phone's IP address. I think it's something simple like you fill out your utilities and 
I think we should ask somebody about that because I think that's come up a couple times. And I even think about that because if you do like say an FHA loan um, and a 203K loan, mm-hmm. you have to be an owner occupant. You have to live on the property when you use those kinds of loans to fix up a property. So do you think they're adding this bond writer and saying you have to live there forever? Well, no. So, but that the two hundred three k loan is, uh, I think, there's a minimum that you have to live there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you think there'd be a minimum, and that's why I was surprised. I'm like, she's been living here and for six years. She's yeah, been paying and I the thought mortgage. it was like one year. So I'm not yeah. even thinking like it's extended an amount of time. So let's say it's even like five years, which is the normal like forgiven. So if you do like a a state down payment assistance type program well five years is the you know they forgive it a hundred percent i know we're not talking about this either one of us like we're experts but i think this is the type of thing that is makes it a good reason to a use a realtor who has been around and sort of can talk about stuff in general or to know that these scenarios exist know that these scenarios exist and to also use a lender who sort of will communicate with you and tell you what's going on and because I'm sure she had no idea that she had some sort of bond writer on the Mm-mm. on the property when she bought it. No, and that's a little surprising. Even six years later. Six years later. Okay, can I keep going? Keep going. Potpourri. All right, so just a little comment. It seems like um, frustratingly for me, home prices are going up. Oh, my gosh. And so when it's funny because when we're representing sellers... It's great. But when we're representing buyers, I find it to be frustrating and a little scary. Uh, I had a buyer who was looking at a house that was for sale in the Maplewood Richmond Heights School District. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he goes over to the open house and it's jam packed. So there's like 30 people at the open house. Anybody's like, but I really like it. I want to make an offer, you know. And so I go and I do my research on what it's worth. And um, it was. For simplicity of this conversation and public and all this stuff, I'll say it was listed for 180. That's right around what it was listed for. And I go and I do my research and I'm like, hold on. I sold one extremely similar to that um, like a year ago or so for 155. And we had multiple offers and like that's what they got us worked up to was 155. Or that's what we worked them up to, I guess. And this house is not that much more updated. Not a superior lot by any means, but it's listed at 180. So he's like, "Oh, what should I offer?" And I'm like, "Here's the deal, man. I think you should pay 170 for it. You know, because the market is improving, and there was some updates a little bit to the property, new flooring, and that kind of stuff. Maybe a little bit of a better layout too. So I'm like, I think you should pay 170 for it. But here's the deal: you're not going to. I'm like, they're going to get way over asking for this thing, and it's going to sell for way too much. You know, the prices are going up." And so I basically we offered 190 10,000 over asking and we didn't get it. One so we offered 190 on a house that I thought was worth significantly less. It's and it's frustrating. But what we look at as realtors a lot is the past. Like I just said, yeah, we sold this one a little over a year ago for 155, right? I'm looking at the past. And what what we're not considering when we do that is home prices increasing. And so we have to look at what happened in the past and then add in this like sort of percentage that we take out of the air of appreciation. 
And we should be able to do that. I mean, what's the best thing about real estate is that it appreciates. Yes. And why don't we, as the realtors, want to give the seller credit for that when we're representing the buyer? You know, we because we're trying to get the best deal for our client. But when there's multiple offers like this, sometimes your your goal is just to get the property, you know? It, the goal is to get the property, but then even like last year, didn't you run into a time or two or a couple of our agents running into the issue of it actually appraising? There, there was a couple the, cases where it didn't yes. appraise. Yeah. So there are a couple of cases. So you can pay whatever you want because it's the house that you want where where you want it. But the thing still has to appraise. So a couple of comments about that. A, I asked him how long he's planning on living there. And he said three to five years. And which to me meant that we needed to be much more sensitive about the pricing for the property. Because when he calls me in three years to sell, I don't think the market's necessarily going to be that much crazy different. You okay. know, if someone says, this is my forever house, we're going to live here for 30 years. You know, I'm going to die in this house, which I've had clients say that too. <laughs> then we still want to get the property for a good price because you never know what's going to happen. But it's less important to be so particular about it, you know, because whatever even if they move in 10 years or 15 years, the market will be a lot different. They'll have equity in the home and, you know, but him saying, Oh, maybe three years was like, I'm like, Oh boy, we really need to make sure that you buy this. Right. Cause the, the worst thing is when someone, you help someone buy a house and they call you a couple of years later and you're like, Oh great. Yeah. It looks like you'll be losing some money, you know, and that happens. It's not really our fault because the market changes, but that does happen. What was it? You made me, I was going to have two points for you there. The appraisal part of it. Oh, and then so I heard something interesting about that. If a property doesn't appraise, generally we just have to either lower the price. To, the seller has to agree to reduce the sales price to what the property appraised for. Mm-hmm. Or the buyer has to agree to just come up with the difference. And right? you've had both. I've had both. Yes. Um, I don't like it when the buyer comes up with the difference. But in some cases, you don't agree with the appraisal. You know, I don't I don't personally look at appraisals like the end all be all. You know, I always say appraisals an art, not a science, right? Right. So the number could change. I don't really like it when the buyer has to come up with the difference because in theory they should never really be paying more than the appraised value. Right. Uh but sometimes the seller also doesn't want to come down or can't afford to come down and so you have to make some sort of a compromise. But I heard something interesting that a realtor um a, another realtor was telling me a story of he showed a home it was listed, you know, I think, again, it was it was listed for like 200 He did the comps and said, this thing is worth 180 And he calls the listing agent. And he says, hey, we're going to write an offer. And she's like, great, we have multiple offers. And he's like, oh, do you think 180 will do it? And, and she's like, no, we have multiple offers over asking. And he's like, there's been nothing in this neighborhood that's ever sold for more than 180 and all the houses are like exactly like yours. How are you going to get this thing to appraise? And she said something that I thought was interesting. She said, I'm going to take all of these multiple offers that we received and I'm going to submit them to the appraiser to use them as comps. Because if all the, you know, a house is worth what someone's willing to pay, right? And if all these properties, or all these people are willing to pay this price for this house, then in theory, the house should be worth this much, right? In theory, and so will that stand up? I don't know. I had lunch with an appraiser friend of mine and I asked him about that and he's like, Ugh. you know, it would be hard for him to like 
justify that kind of in court or whatever, you know. He would he would love to have all those offers as like more supporting document for a value, but a value that was already supported through another sale. Yes, because if if it's way over, I don't see how I mean, and we're talking way over. I, if it were like five or ten over, I'd be. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be supporting documentation. Once you get start, start to really get past that, yeah. If it's a little bit over, I think that the appraiser can say like it's an appreciating market, and it's uh, you know. So if it's worth a little, we bit haven't more had enough sales in the past year, yeah. even. But it's tough because we might see this this house that I was just talking about in the Maplewood Richmond Heights School District. We might see it back on the market if the buyer gets it appraised, and they're like. Yeah, darn thing's worth one seventy, <laughs> you know. And the seller's like, "Well, I'm not going to lower my price by thirty thousand dollars or whatever the whatever the buyer's paying." You know, I don't know, but um, so we'll see what happens with that. But prices are going up, which is why you're seeing all your realtor friends on Facebook saying it's a great time to sell. Inventory is low, you know. Actually, I did a search today. There's one home for sale in the Maplewood Richmond Heights School District. One home. One? Sale. One. Isn't that weird? I'm like, no, I must have done something wrong. No, I must have done this wrong. No, I was right. There's one home active on the market. One. Did you take away all criteria and just yeah. look? Uh-huh. Active. My only criteria was active and in the Maplewood Richmond Heights School District. One home. Um, so isn't that crazy? I also noticed No, that I'm the- seeing that a lot. Like even in certain areas of the city... You- there's buy. I've had buyers drop out, drop off the map because you can't get anything in the areas that they want. Mm-hmm. And so I also noticed today that I think the total number of listings on the MLS right now, so that includes St. Louis, St. Charles, Jefferson County. All I think we even go to Cape now and all yeah, you know all parts of Illinois. The we the MLS coverage area is far greater than it was like seven years ago, and we have about just under thirteen thousand in the twelve thousands total active listings on the market right now. I remember when that was over 30,000. Like, you know, I guess 2006 or something like that, there was over 30,000 homes on the market. And so inventory, when they say inventory is low, they're not kidding. It's like a third of what it has been in the past. It's almost non-existent in some areas, though. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's tough. When you have a buyer like you're talking about that wants to buy a house and you can't find anything, it's tough. That's why they need a realtor like you who's out there door knocking, right? Mailing flyers, doing like creative Facebook ads and doing ads to our property search thing and our uh, company, What's Your Home Worth website, trying to find sellers before, you know, they list their property and everyone else knows about them. Right. So call Shannon St. Pierre. <laughs> Two more topics I want to talk about really quick. I was I was showing a client a house and it's listed by owners.com and they it's a foreclosure and they use a system called Hubzoo, H-U-B-Z-U.com to take and receive offers, right? All these foreclosure companies now. And I think they, this is crazy. This is off the charts. Yeah, we talked New about this earlier crazy. today. But all the foreclosure companies now, they are sort of affiliated with some website that you go to to make your offer. Right, it's just so the listing agent, I suppose, is not totally inundated with offers, and then the person at the bank, the I feel bad for the person at the bank who's managing a thousand listings across the country or whatever. Um, so Hubzoo, you go there and it's kind of an auction thing, and we made an offer, or we started to make an offer, but what we found is that they have no 
inspection contingency in their offer. So it's not like a normal offer. We get to use our contract. We get to write up the terms we want. We get to say, here's our offer. We're essentially following only their terms of their contract, which they don't even give you a copy of their contract. They just kind of give you like little morsels of what it is. And so I had to contact customer support who put me in touch with somebody else. There's no inspection contingency on this house. This house is over $600,000. Is that actually how you found out? There's no, there's nothing on the website that says no exactly. inspection period? Right. They have like a sample contract, and the sample contract is like section 7.1, inspection contingency, blah, blah, blah. You can get inspections. And then it's like, or, I'm you know paraphrasing here, it's like, or section point two, no inspection contingencies. And it's kind of like, it'll be one of those. So I'm like, well, which one is it? Because it didn't, and it, and it insinuates that you're going to have the chance to decide that when you're making your offer or when you're making your bid, I guess, since it's an auction. But it, it didn't have that. And I looked and looked and looked. And so I contacted their customer support or whatever. And yeah, they're saying, no, we expect you to get your inspections done before you make your offer, which is crazy, right? So on any house, inspections are hundreds of dollars. 800 at least. 8 to 850. 8 to 1,000. On this over $600,000 house, it's a really big house. They're going to spend a ton of money on inspections because sometimes the inspection price goes up based on the size. Oh, right. So a larger house is easily over 1,000. A, they're going to spend a ton of money on inspections. But by the way, there's no utilities on. There's no water. There's no gas. There's no electric on. So they're not even really going to be able to do a very thorough inspection. So is Hubzoo... You think geared toward purely the investor because that's kind of how it is on other, uh, even the HUDstore.com will, uh, once it goes to the investor, if you're an investor, they do not allow inspections. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that they just say as is. The seller is going to do no inspections, which is normal. The seller is not going to get the municipal inspection. You can do inspections, but you don't get your earnest money back if you're an investor. That's fine. Okay. But still, you have the right to do your inspections and back out, right? Yes. In this case, we have no right to back out because of inspections. So I guess we'd essentially have to figure out a way to wriggle out because of loan contingency if we wanted to, I guess. But she, they can't even really do thorough inspections because none of the utilities are on. And they won't right? turn them on, right. And they're not going to turn them on. Well, mm-hmm. because we're not even under contract. They're saying, get it figured out. Go over there, spend you know $800 on inspections, and you don't even know if you're going to get the house, right? Who knows what the house is going to go for? And so just beware. That's all I wanted to say is beware. If you're, if you're doing anything like that, that's another great reason to use a realtor who has your best interest in mind and all that stuff. But... Um, but it's good for realtors to remember that's even a possibility. Yeah, it's it boggled my mind that it would be a possibility. And I actually, the customer service said, no, you have to do your inspections before you make your offer. And I wrote back, like, that doesn't seem right. Let me clarify. That's unreasonable, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, they basically said the same exact thing back. Yeah, you have to do your inspections before you make an offer. So, all right. Um, one last comment. I want to talk about home staging briefly, very briefly, Okay. Uh, and the value of it, you know, uh, I do believe in home staging. My brother and my mother did just start a home staging company called Watson Home Staging, and they're doing a great job. But I just listed two properties for an investor, basically at the same exact time. One of them he staged, one of them he didn't, because he thought that the one was in like a better school district and better location. So the one of them that he did stage was under contract in two days. Mm-hmm. And the one that he didn't stage, which is in, quote-unquote, a superior school district, 
has been on the market now for I think eight or ten days and has no contract on it. And the feedback we're getting is feels small, feels small, feels small. And it's just so interesting to me. Home staging does work. It does sell. It'll make the photos look better so you get more showings. And then once you actually get the showings, it'll make the house feel bigger, more war- more inviting, warmer, and all that kind of stuff. So Totally agree. I know you believe in it. Mm-hmm. So home staging sells. Check it out. Call a home stager. Maybe Watson Home Staging. Shout out to my brother. I don't know why, because I help him go over there and move all the furniture and stuff. So I'm just yeah, putting, causing more work for myself. But it's a good workout. So I'll wrap it up. If you have any more questions, please contact Shannon St. Pierre. <laughs> Can you give us your like uh, contact information, your Snapchat, so my, whatever you called it? Yeah. So my phone number, 314-583-0070. Good. Like a 007 little agent. 0070. Yep. Okay. And Shannon at livingtowergrove.com. And my Snapchat is at livingtg. At livingtg? Yeah, at livingtg. Or it's also under my name. So either way, you can search. What about your Twitter? Um, STL <laughs> City Realtor. And your Pinterest? No, Gary V said Pinterest is on its way out. Yeah, he did, yeah he's not really into Pinterest. I do like Pinterest personally, but... Uh, Facebook is STL City Realtor, too. Okay, great. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please send in your 